In this episode of Fintech Flow, I talked to a Hungarian wealth tech company, which has won a series of awards in the last couple of years. Amongst many others, they were recently awarded the best fintech for sustainable finance at the global BBBA Open Talent Competition. Last year, they were named the best Hungarian fintech startup by the jury of the Central European Startup Awards. What is far more important is how they are driven by a noble thought of social responsibility and how they combine that with cutting-edge technology and deep knowledge, experience and professionalism in the investment field. Welcome to Fintech Flow, where we deep dive into the depth and complexity of successful startups, sit down with bright fintech minds and bridge together the gap in mindset between the legacy players and today's innovators. With 10 years experience as a manager in the financial sector, MIT certified fintech expert Linda Schalai is prepared to put it all in play and to follow the flow. Welcome to Fintech Flow. Could you please introduce yourself and your company Blue Ops? Yeah, my name is Balash Holovegi. I'm one of the co-founders of Blue Ops. We are in, in digital wealth management. To be more precise, we are providing a digital platform for banks, asset managers, independent advisors, which is based on digital on digitization of all the processes that wealth management covers. And we are focused on social responsibility investing as well. Can we go and dig a little bit uh, deeper? What does robo-advising mean? How does it work in practice? Who Mm -hmm. makes the investment decision? Do you use artificial intelligence? How does that work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the first robo-advisor started to rise up around eight, nine years ago. And this is a completely cloud-based solution. And I, I would rather say digital wealth management platform or digital wealth management generally, and they can totally automatize the whole processes of different investment objectives, different investment goals, different investment life cycle, for for example, for the full customer life cycle management. And the first robo-advisors came as completely B2C companies, but what we are doing is more focused on the B2B side, which is that we are providing the platform for banks or private banking departments, for example, and they can give their inputs into the system and the system handles all unique portfolios differently and rebalances regularly and there's a CRM functionality, there's onboarding, there's client acquisition, so everything is covered which is on the investment side of the business. Yes, we use artificial intelligence. What we are doing inside this subject is not artificial intelligence as you can read about it most of the time, especially in in, uh, fiction novels, but a model, an algorithm, which can learn and study and learn and apply these experiences from learning to how to handle the clients, for example. The most typical example is that if there's a downturn in the markets, and client starts to log in way more frequently than than usually, this means that he or she is very, very nervous. And this means that probably the risk profile is not perfectly set. So if she, he or she logins again and again, we have to set the risk aversion higher, which means that uh, we need to buy more low risk or no risk assets for, for this person. The general idea came from humans, us, but 
how, what, what is too often, what is too nervous. We don't know that, so we have to learn it. And we, d- we didn't do this by creating a huge database, actually creating a huge database and uh, manually go through it and manually adjust it, but the system can readjust it itself according to these inputs. For example, how many times the client logs in during a downturn. Okay, so do I understand right that part of it is automated? Some decisions, but some decisions are still human-driven? No, fully, it's fully automated or it can be fully automated. The client, the B2B client decides how much automatization do they want. So it's, it's up to them. But if, if we just put this aside and if we just only take a look at our system, the whole thing is automatized. So the idea is how the system works is ours. It's from human, but the system is fully automatized. So it can, even if we, let's say, okay, let's put aside the legal and other stuff, but even if we, if we just die out or, or disappear from the surface of, of the earth, the, the system can go on uh, without any, any kind of intervention. You mentioned that social responsible investing is uh, an important part uh, of what you're doing. What's the idea behind it and why is it important for you? Actually, it's, it's not only a part of our system, it's in the core of our system. Mm-hmm. So from the very first moment we started to develop the algorithm, we had the goal to make it socially responsible at least that much that any client can decide if, if they, how much they are interested in social responsible investing. The reason we started it, there are two reasons actually. The first is we as humans are concerned about our future. We can see how climate change starts to change everything in the environment, talking about temperature, talking about big storms, water shortages, effects on, on, on nature itself, effects on society, which already starts to be seen. So we, first of all, we are concerned, also concerned about some of the society's important issues. That was one of the, the goal to, to help this to make. And there was not at, at all any kind of approach when we started that not not um, so there was social responsible investing but not any kind of digital approach to it truly digital approach so that was that was the first one the second one is it's a good niche because there is a consumer group called LOHAS it stands for lifestyle uh, of health and sustainability most uh, of the, these people are uh, young they care about the environment they care about they are very conscious about their health they are very conscious about what products do they buy, or they are very choosy about where they work, for example. So they won't go to work for a big oil company, but for a renewable energy company. But there was no solution at all for these people. If they, how, how do they invest their money? And it's one of the most important aspects. The change in different KPIs, how much uh, CO2 emissions has one portfolio, uh, or or any kind of other effect on nature and society just by switching it to social responsible investing without sacrificing any kind of return you have a multiplied effect how should i imagine this decision if uh, i would like to invest and then i decided that i want to invest socially responsibly what are my options what are the choices and can you give me some examples to make it more tangible what does it mean that i invest uh, this way 
Yeah, it's a very, very broad topic. You have choices on basically two things. One is what kind of personal value preferences you have. So, for example, if you are really interested in e-mobility and you see a big future in uh, way less polluted cities because of, of e-mobility, for example, or if you care about more about forests than uh, climate change itself, so both are very important topics. Uh, you can prioritize it with our system or even by yourself, but it probably takes way more time. So that's that's one of the things. It's it's really personal. It's, I, I cannot say that this is more important than this. Uh, this is absolutely personal, personal value preference. The other thing is how deep you want to go into social responsible investing. There are different approaches. So for example, the best in class approach is the, has the more depth. It means that if you have 100 different stocks to choose from, which uh, where to invest your money, uh, you will only choose one of the top 20, for example. So the 20 best companies which are more social responsible than the others. But it's not a must. So for example, you can do negative screening, which means that you won't buy only the best, but you will exclude some sectors. For example, oil sector, weapons manufacturers, uh, some people say nuclear energy. Yeah, so these, these kind of companies. Yeah, so that's the two basic things of value preferences and how deep you want to go into social responsible investing. The data says that you will not lose until a certain point any kind of return compared to the same risk because you go more deep into social responsible investing. Okay, so you say that I don't need to compromise on returns. No. And the thought is definitely more than nice. And I think uh, anyone, at least in our generation, could relate to it. So why are not everyone investing this way? Well, that's a very good question because they don't know. I started to study and started to practice social responsible investing now. I think more more than almost five years ago, I started to study way before then. And wherever I go, it, it, it really doesn't matter. I can go to Western Europe, Eastern Europe. There are some differences. Uh, I can go to even the US, wherever I go, which kind of company. Some people already know what is social responsible investing or ESG, environmental social governance factors are. But even if they know, they have a lot of myths about it and they they don't really understand their mindset is not switched yes it is true that we are measuring the performance at least partly the performance of investments in money but if we have a certain impact on the environment or if on society that's that can be for someone or for most of us an externality which also has costs and that's the main point, that if you invest in the right way, in the long term, but according to data, even in the midterm, you are going to get a better result or at least a better risk return performance. Because if uh, you invest in companies which, are, which don't care about the environment, don't care about society, sooner or later it will come back to them and it will have huge consequences. Volkswagen is a very good example, for example. So they deliberately, they cheated on the nitrogen dioxide emissions of their cars. 
and they had the whole system built up. And once it, it turned out, I've seen a documentary about it, it's on Netflix, everyone can see, they could hide it for five years, even after, I think four or five years, even after the first discovery came out. So, but sooner or later, it will, it will get them. And it did get them. So uh, I think that's the basis of, of this. You incorporated these kind of investments with digital solutions or robo-advising. Yeah. These two are two different approaches. Do they have an added value when you combine them? Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's one of the main uh, points of our company, I think. Because nobody did that and it's, it's really not an easy task. So we are developing it for more than three years now. And we combined it with uh, stuff like factory investing, some, some macro, some behavioral finance. This is basically an endless, endless job or endless uh, exercise. It's dynamic and it's a continuous learning, but it has a huge effect. Because if you don't use these digitization techniques, it will get extremely, extremely stressful and probably a kind of mission impossible to to create a good social responsible investing portfolio. Maybe you can do it for one person or five person or ten, but you cannot do it for hundreds or thousands because it, it, it gets them really, really, really complex and difficult to do so. Let's look at it a little bit from the customer's point of view, from the investor's point of view. What is the main idea of why investors choose to invest socially responsibly? Is it the thought? Or is it more like a business decision? It's more like a thought now. There's a myth around it. The, the biggest one is that uh, you have to uh, sacrifice some of the returns, or at least you have to have a bigger risk or something like that. Uh, well, it's not true. So thousands, actually thousands of studies prove it, that it, it is not true. So the main reason is that uh, they uh, it's more like uh, an emotional uh, decision. They want to have an impact or... Yes, they, they want to, to have an impact. They want to feel good about themselves by doing something good. And sometimes they go to, to do volunteer work or work for good companies or buy good products. But investing is also, also a big part of it. And most people do care about these issues. But they just don't really know how they can do it or what impact does it have not only on, on, on the environment of society, but on themselves, on, on their exact portfolio. So that's, that's the main barrier. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big, big, big learning curve. It's just the, the beginning of a road. So we will see how important these issues will be in the future, but we can see a, a clear upward trend now. Let's move to your customers, which is then uh, financial institutions. Yeah. Um, you just recently announced that you started working with the MKB Bank. What does this mean? Because we talked about digital approaches, we talked about ESG investing. Is this all included when you give a service to a financial institution? Or is it just part of it that they would like to use? Well, there are certain dimensions to it as well, what they can use. So what uh, you can use from an investment perspective or a professional's perspective uh, for example, do you want to use uh, it with macro data or you have any kind of macroeconomical estimates yourself or you just want to, to use the consensus, for example? Or do you have a, a certain asset list we, you would like to use? Or do you want to use it with ESG or not? ESG is definitely a part of it. They can set it 
at a low level, but they, they cannot set it to zero. But that's just one of the dimensions. The other one, the other important is what kind of module do they want? Do they want an organization uh, module, organization level, or advisor level, or even a client level? So this means that even clients can log in, see their portfolios. The logic says that the client is the first, but uh, at first, that's uh, even what we thought, but uh, we learned that actually it's the other way around. So the organization and the advisor levels, the, the whole system can apply to, to it uh, way more earlier than to client. Because of some, some partly because of regulatory and, uh, and other stuff, but mainly because the learning curve is not from the clients, it's from the service providers. So, for example, many, many institutional investors now signed that at least they consider ESG in their uh, investment processes. Most retail clients don't even know what this is. They have the value preference, but they don't even know what ESG is. So they would like to use, for example, MKBPB, uh, private banking uses the organizational level and the advisor level. And then they also can decide which modules can uh, be applied. So for example, they want to make their own risk profile creation or, or they, they buy from us, for example, or CRM functionalities, or portfolio rebalancing functionalities, or even tax optimization functionalities, and it can be chosen. So it covers the whole life cycle. It's never a ready product, it's always developing. And uh, in this case, in MKB's private bank's case, uh, the main value of your services that the client can have very tailor-made and automated investment solutions. Yes, that's the, the main uh, goal. But to that, we would like at this point to make the whole system to use is more, more easier for the organization itself to the, the, so they can monitor what is going on in uh, clients' portfolios. But what's more, even more important is to make it more easier for advisors. So some advisors even have to deal with more than 100 clients. And uh, this is an investment advice, not portfolio management, which means that they have to discuss each and every transaction with a client, which is a huge, huge uh, task to do it. If, even for 20 clients, I think, but that for, for 100 or 120, that's, that's a huge deal, especially when the markets really uh, are in the move. So that's, that's a huge problem. And with this tool, they can create or rebalance the portfolios in a matter of seconds. So it will make their job way, way, way easier. In some cases, it already does. And the, the uniqueness of the portfolio is by scaling this thing and putting it, it into technology is a huge, huge effectiveness jump. Or they can choose that it can be a huge cost-cutting tool as well. The client decides which is more important to cut costs or keep the costs at the same level, but make it way, way more effective. But it can be even both, at, at least to some level. But the assets between you choose from, it is the existing uh, assets that they use right now with the clients. What you help with is the reallocation and the continuous reallocating, right? Yes. So, because from a business point of view, it could be important for a financial institution that if they want to cooperate with Blue Ops, does that mean that they need to say goodbye to all the profit that comes from the investment uh, services? 
well, it's up to them. Probably they, they would never say yes to the, to this. So yes, we, we work together with the existing uh, asset supplier, asset list of, uh, of each customer. We can obviously suggest modifications, but uh, our approach is not changing it much. Our approach is to rebalance, reweight these to be more unique to the client, to the, to the client's needs and the client's financial goals and uh, at the same time being more social responsible. So if you are a B2B company, you cannot say to a bank or an investment fund management companies, okay, these assets you should choose from and we just only help with these because that's that's somewhere in the core of their business. So if a robo-advisor does a B2C approach, they can decide which assets they will uh, serve. One of the main advantages of robo-advising is uh, the much lower cost for the customers. In case of uh, using robo-advising B2B, does the customer feel anything about the cost reduction? Oh, it depends on the B2B client. In generally, I would say yes, because if you see all the data about the profit margins of investment service providers or especially wealth management service providers, the margins almost year by year, every year, getting under more and more and more pressure. That's why they started to, to look for automated solutions. And because the automated solutions get applied, there is not a must for them to lower the cost, but they have a tendency they have to fight with. And if they have a more effective system, which have lower costs, at least per client, per retail client, they can go lower without sacrificing uh, any kind of uh, profits. So most of the time that this is what happens. Is it difficult to fit your service to an incumbent company? So you're a startup with very modern solution and very digital based. How long and how difficult was the process to implement with MKB? I cannot go into details with okay. it, but in generally, because we have other experiences, Generally, it's very, very hard to implement a system with an already existing, let's say that's a, a big word also recently, it's a, with legacy systems. So it's really not that easy. The good thing is that we have developed a process and we applied to some, some resources to, to these processes, which can create a good data dump, which can be used in our system and can be very, very, very easily uh, come out from the existing systems. That's why it's not a very big deal for us, but the higher the integration is, the bigger uh, the costs are because of it. But there is no need to have a very huge integration. I think yes, in the long term, yes, but during that time until it's re it becomes really important, I think almost all banks who want to survive or all big investment companies who want to survive, they have to open themselves at some at some level, at least. They have to become some kind of a platform. They have to provide AP, APIs. Uh, and if the APIs are there, the connection is, is really, well, really easy. So it's way, way, way more easier. And I think that's, that's going to make a, a big groundbreaking change in the industry, which already started, but some people and some uh, companies are stuck in the old model and when it starts to get really really wide 
for example, with PSD2, it, it's starting to get really wide at the, at the payment uh, segment. But when the investment segment will do the same in the next couple of years, it's going to be groundbreaking. And then our job will be way, way more easier as well. And uh, we, can, we can provide way more services, I think. You just recently won the Best Fintech for Sustainable Finance Award at BBVA's Open Talent Competition, which yeah. is, as far as I know, the biggest uh, fintech competition in the world. Does that also mean a cooperation with the bank, which has a couple tens of millions of clients worldwide? Yeah, they have uh, more than 70 million clients. So this is a step which uh, starts build relationships, build trust. And then when the investment part, for example, at there or any other company will be open, then it's, it's going to be a great opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about the competition? Uh, well, you had to apply through a website. Then there was, I think, two calls when we pitched in front of them. And then a couple of weeks later, we, we received the, the prize. Uh, I think there was a huge competition. There were more than 900 applicants, but there are different awards. So they didn't tell us, but my estimation is that for the best uh, fintech for sustainable finance, at least 40, 50 companies were in the game. We have seen the shortlist there. I think that was six or eight companies, six, I think uh, the shortlist was six. And the good thing is that we were the only one who in, in Wellstech. And I think it was already an advantage because uh, that's where the biggest effect you can have on, on certain social issues. Well, that you guys at Blue Ops, that sounds quite complex. What kind of superheroes work with you to make all this happen? Is it easy to find this kind of people with this kind no, of knowledge? It's, it's very hard. First of all, no, no, not superheroes. There's a big stereotype that most startups come from 20-somethings. They just dro drop out of college, you know. I think the best time to start a startup is when you have at least 10 years of experience, but you still young or at least young at heart so this means that you have the passion and that maybe you have more room to to or more resources to commit to this kind of project because it, it will take a lot of time so the, the, the ideal age i think it's around 35 36 something like that and we have a kind of a diverse team and everyone has a big big knowledge a big experience on their own field so everyone is in contact with everyone or in every with every topic so at least have a basic knowledge of everything inside the company and one very big knowledge in their exact topic exact experience and and that's that's a good thing you you said a lot of saying that uh, farm, uh, farm of french factors for example or or artificial intelligence or esg the other thing is that everything has its own educational background or library background or studies background so we don't have to find out everything by ourselves, only how to connect these and give some, I don't like this expression, but let's say give some secret sauce to it. Basically that's it. And um, it, 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 it was more than three years now. So we didn't create it in, in overnight. So the first months were, were we, we were, I wouldn't say totally clueless, but we had to find out a lot of things and then build up, build up, build up. So we, we don't have to be a superhero, just one good background and uh, experience and, and a diverse team. 
Are you so, currently looking for talents? Yeah, we always look for talent. What we are always looking for are quants. People who have knowledge in financial modeling and also in programming financial modeling. So they understand the product, they understand the market, but at the same time, they have a good mathematical, statistical and programmer background, especially Python. The other thing uh, which is hard to find is uh, good, let's say, project managers or, or account managers or people who are also involved in sales. Not many people are there who, who are good in B2B sales or handling B2B uh, sales cycle and especially implementation cycle. So that's also a, a good thing if you find some, someone who, 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 is, uh, who is in that field. So if, if anyone listens to it, just send us an email with a CV and maybe we'll talk. In terms of sales and B2B sales, do you have any geographical preferences? Yes, so obviously we are based in the C region, so that's one of the preferences. Uh, we are raising money now and uh, we started to have discussions in the in Netherlands, Denmark, for whole Scandinavia, some in Spain, as I mentioned, but the experience is, and everyone tells this uh, to us as well, that if you really want to uh, be a good uh, B2B software as a service company, in Western Europe, you have to have some base in somewhere in Western Europe. So we are raising money now to to expand some way. We are examining the possibilities right now. In five years' time, the maximum we want to achieve is, is uh, having a presence in most European countries. That's a nice goal, though. Yes, or, or five or ten years, I say. Five years, maybe it's, it's uh, very optimistic, but yeah. Okay, thank you. Good luck for that. Thank you very much. Thanks for a great discussion, Balash, And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review. Let us know what you think. You can find Fintech Flow on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.